Suzanne. My name is Anita. And your podcasts and books have uh, played a big part in helping me broaden my understanding and deepen my journey of transformation with God through the Enneagram. I found particularly helpful the way you unpack the stances, what particular Enneagram numbers notice, and orientation to time. My question is a simple one related to orientation to time. Obviously, we each have our home orientation to time in our particular space on the Enneagram, but here's my question. Might we move into a different orientation to time if we move toward the numbers that represent our stress or health spaces or one of our wings that has a different orientation to time than the number with which we identify? I ask this because as a one who has a time orientation to the present, I'm noticing that when I move toward my stress number four or draw heavily off of my nine wing, my focus shifts to the past. And when I'm moving toward my health number seven, my focus shifts more toward the future. It seems to me if this is accurate, that it's another way to help with a work of inner observation and noticing and to respond rather than to react. Thank you for taking my question and especially for being willing to share the gifts that God has entrusted to you by serving others with them. Welcome back, everyone, to the Enneagram Journey. Thank you so much, Anita, for your question. And a reminder to everybody that you can send in your questions at theenneagramjourney.org. And Suzanne and her guests will do their best to try to answer them. Her guest today is Enneagram Ford David Gaffney. And he and Suzanne do a great job of addressing Anita's question, as well as several other key issues and strengths and weaknesses of Enneagram Force. We hope you enjoy their conversation. My guest today is David Gaffney, a four on the Enneagram. And you know, I wasn't going to say this, but I can't keep from it. I've known you all your life. How old are you? I just turned 48. That's crazy. That's just crazy. So um, knowing you as an adult and as a male four who works with high school kids has kind of given me a new way of looking at necessary and needed gifts and graces for educators if we're going to meet the needs of an entire population of not kids and not adults, but whatever that space is in between where personality is already well-formed and decisions are going to be made about how we move forward. So I um, have kind of quietly celebrated the fact that you've been a football coach, that you uh, actually coached the select baseball team of one of my grandchildren, that you are with kids a lot. And as I watch you, I'm so aware that the patience that comes with being a male for is a real cultural gift. So I'm going to start right there. And I want to know what you think about that and what you have to say about it and how it has, um, how male fourness, how being a male and being a four is both a gift and a challenge for you. Well, first, thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, it's, it's always such a blessing to be with you. Uh, and, and, and I want to thank you for your work in the Enneagram, such a blessing to, to, to the community and, and hopefully it's growing and expanding. Yeah. Being a four as a male, uh, was, was challenging as an adolescent and growing up. Uh, 
you know, due to the fact that I pretty much feel first yeah, and think second, sometimes it's, and, and, and oftentimes growing up, it was difficult to get out of my feelings. All right. Um, so st- I'm going to stop you right now. Cause I, I got a lot of questions about that, that I'll forget. So at what point being a four as a kid was, did, do you remember it starting to be hard? And then at what age approximately do you think you kind of started to grow into it in a way that is, um, made it more, uh, gift for you. And let me just say that I, the reason I've known you all your life is because I've known your dad for most of my life and he's a seven on the Enneagram and he's a card carrying everything that you would imagine a seven to be. So the difference between the two of you in an ordinary way of doing life as a father and a son must have been obvious. It was, it was, uh, most of my childhood and young, young teenage years, I, I really didn't feel like I could be who I came to learn I was as a four. Okay. Say that again. Cause that's real important. You didn't feel like you could be who you came to learn that you were as a four, meaning you just didn't understand yourself. Is that what you're saying? I didn't have a context or, or an environment in which I could really uh, live that out. I got it. And so, and so let, 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 let me, let me give back. And of course, you know, my home growing up, I do. a highly competitive, a highly athletic environment. And so, uh, we were encouraged and given all the opportunities, uh, that, that, that we needed to, to go and achieve in anything we wanted to. And of course, for me, it was athletics. Sure. Uh, I was, uh, I was gifted as an athlete growing up, knew that early on. Uh, so in a, in in competitive circles, not just at home, but in competitive circles, me as a male four, there wasn't a lot of room for me to get real emotional about things. Huh. Uh, and as an athlete, you're taught to have a short memory, and you're taught to to move on and 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 correct mistakes, minimize them, correct and move on and be better. Yeah. Uh, and and there wasn't there wasn't an emotional capacity for me to be able to do that growing up. And so what I ended up doing was uh, kind of turning those feelings within, and, and I developed a real, uh, real imaginative, private, internal life. And so I had an internal existence mm-hmm. uh, where I, where I uh, lived in what you've termed as episodic meeting with most of the things that I experienced and went through, and then I lived that out. Uh, I, I uh, honestly think I lived, for the most part, in my three-wing. Yeah. Uh, where I was, I was able to give to those individuals, teams, teammates, you know, schoolmates, those kinds of things, teachers, all the leaders in my life. I was able to give them what they demanded from me, but it was at the it was at the cost and the expense of me developing my internal life. Sure. So you've, you're- you've spoken a lot at <clears throat> workshops about episodic meaning, but I don't think it's been spoken about much on the podcast. Can you go into a little bit of detail about what that is? Sure. I think, um, we, there are people in the wisdom of the Enneagram who would be, uh, I, I think we could say who find themselves comfortable moving in life from episode to episode. So the consistent theme that runs across the life maybe of a female too 
would be that I consistently uh, want everybody to want me. I want everybody to feel like they matter. I want everybody to be important. And episodic meaning, which often happens to um, female eights and male twos and fours, is that you, in order to be pleasing to the culture around you or in order to make your way, you're saying that you internally move from episode to episode, but you maintained a baseline that made you acceptable in the system that was your family system. Is that what you would say? So episodes are a big thing happens, and then there's just three days of life where everything's normal, and people kind of, some people check out during the normal time and wait to dial in again at the next episode. And then they check out and wait to dial in again at the next episode. So numbers that are least likely to give themselves to episodic meaning are fours, fives, and nines because their orientation to time is the past. I've got a quick follow-up question for David with that. Um, in your stances workshop that you did recently, you talked about the low side of four and what the unhealthy side of four can look like. And when you spoke about that in terms of episodic meaning, you talked about how fours, if there's not like a four in stress or a four maybe in trouble or whatever, if there's not an episode, that they're happy with creating an episode. Like they're, if there's not trauma or drama or something, that then they'll make some up. Does that ring true? And not again, and that's in the lower side, naturally, not the higher side. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I, I think how, it, how that manifested itself in my life growing up was I would really over-exaggerate events. There you go. Internally and then externally, meaning... So was that to make it an episode because that's what you could relate to? See, I think that, that, that's how I interpreted it. Yes, it, it's to make it an episode, but what you have to do is you've got to go one layer deeper. And as a four, to, to, get, to get the source, as a four, what we struggle tolerating is just the ho-hum mundane of daily go. life. Yeah. And so for us, we either want to experience something at a really high positive level or at a really deep, deep, dark level. Yeah. Either one. We just don't want to be in the middle. Let's exaggerate the regular experience. Yeah. No exaggerate average. the regular experience. No and because our orientation is to the past, I can recall vividly of making all of my what would be considered successes even greater than they were mm -hmm. and really going back and continuing to punish myself for the mistakes, to really uh, dig up whatever it was that didn't go well. Mm -hmm. Because there's energy derived from that, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. another another area of that. Uh, you know, another dimension of that is uh, that creates that energy, whether it's the highest of high or the lowest of low. Mm -hmm. What we as fours, at least my experience has been, we just don't want to go through life with the mundane. And so, one of the things that I was leading toward talking <clears throat> about and talking about orientation of time and the and uh, episodic meaning and comfort, what was, mm -hmm. has to do with the fact that I, th I think uh, fives and nines lack the imagination that fours have. 
Uh, it doesn't mean they lack creativity and it doesn't mean that they don't, uh, aren't capable of, of that, but they lack that ability to go back and make something greater or less than it was. And so I think the challenge for fours coming into uh, last couple of years of high school and into college and then in life is to let things be what they are, just to learn to let things be what they are. So if I move you ahead a little bit to the point where you are now a dean of students, do you see that ability in yourself to let things with students be what they are? And are you capable of helping them hold them to what they are? Or do you get caught in their uh, representation of it being greater or lesser? The short answer to that is yes. I, I, I do feel like I have a capacity uh, where I currently am to be able to, to, to just deal in the here and now. Yeah. Uh, almost to a level that I can't personally but can with the kids. Okay. But I think the other portion of that is what keeps me from getting wrapped up in what their drama situation can be. As a four, I feel like I've, I feel like fours never lose the capacity to really sympathize with emotional turmoil right. within other people. Right. It's a huge gift. And so teenagers are very emotional, no matter what number they are. Right. And everything's dramatic and everything's overemphasized. And I think there's some value in that because it teaches them, it, it, it teaches them a lot of things. I'm able to get right in the middle and, and really sympathize because I've been there and still and still go there a lot. But then the wisdom of having been in education for a long time and dealt with enough, but three of my own children, I feel like wisdom allows me to say, I get that. I've been there. However, the reality is this. And for the four to learn to live in the present, mm -hmm. the here and now, mm -hmm. is, is the greatest gift because it quiets all of fours have voices as well. Sure. It quiets all of that. It 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 uh, it's the antidote for the episodic cycle. Mm -hmm. If you can focus on the here and now. So see what you think about this. I've never said this out loud. I've been working with it, thinking about the my next book. Do you think that there is a a space between not being dismissive of other people and not having expectations? That's my first question. Okay. And then I have a follow-up after you answer that. So I, I, I have a new theory that there is a space between not being dismissive but not having expectation, and that that might be a pretty healthy space to work toward. And then, of course, I have a theory about what numbers I think could more easily do that than others. What do you think? I agree. I agree. Uh, as a four, I know I would be challenged to live in that space. Because? Well, I think the key to living in that space is what we were just mentioning is being present. There you go. Just being present. Uh, 
not 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 letting the past create the narrative that is what you're experiencing mm -hmm. and not looking to the future to come up with the solution or to try to fix mm -hmm. diagnose any of those kinds of things just just being in the here and now because my orientation is to the past mm -hmm. and because now as an educator it is my responsibility mm -hmm. to help to fix it uh, to, to stay in that space would take some work for me. Yeah, I, I think being dismissive just comes easily to some numbers. Mm -hmm. And I think um, expectations come easily. And it seems to me that there's a sweet spot there that you would have a gift for in your ability to what you call empathize and what I would call bear witness to pain. You talked about really focusing on being in the present. Do the two of you think that because of a four and stress and security goes to one and two, is it maybe that important for a four to be in the present that they go to one and two in stress and security, that those are both present numbers? I absolutely think it's that important because fours are prone to lament. You know, don't you think um, there's a tendency in fours to just hang back and wish things had been different? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's like you're particularly gifted for that. And to, to bring back what you said about expectation, I think, and to tie what you're saying, Joel, I, I think at times fours will exempt themselves from expectations because unmet expectations results in disappointment and fours struggle with disappointment. And, and, and so in the one and the two, you know, the stress and the security, there's a balance because in a, when you go to one, you can be so concrete, sequentially task driven, you become future oriented. Sure. In the two, if you're not careful, you can become dependent on others to provide you with what you're not allowing yourself to experience in the here and now. And so it's right there in the middle, Joel, is, is, is in the middle of that, that one and that two. And what I found in being present is that the true creativity of the four mm -hmm. comes out. Yeah, in the present. In the present. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it's oftentimes some of my most creative moments whether I'm in meetings or talk or whether I'm talking with my wife and my kids or with friends or coaching or whatever, they just come out Sure. right there. Cause I'm focused on the here and now I'm grateful. I'm there. Uh, and whatever, it, whatever the creativity of, of the moment is, it just comes. Yeah. I, um, am so excited for the people in the world who meet you especially young men, that you're a college football player and a football coach and a baseball coach. And um, I, I even hate to use this language, but I'm, I'm going to for merely to make this point. You're a man's man. And I um, think there is such a cultural misunderstanding of female eights and male twos and fours, that I think it would be uh, a loss for the podcast for me not to 
bring up that you are, um, you, before you became dean of students, you were the head football coach and you have fours on your coaching staff, which the, the whole world would not believe that there is a football coaching staff in Texas that has male fours on it. And that's because of a lack of understanding of the Enneagram, not because of an understanding of the Enneagram. So I don't have anything else to say, except that I want you to talk about that. Well, I, fours, I think one of the things, whether it's male or female fours, I, I think uh, maybe, maybe a myth that, that I'd like to kind of dispel is that fours are extremely uh, passionate, capable, all of the things you'd look for in a, in a leader exist in fours. Amen. Uh, even to the point where fours oftentimes can tap into the emotional side of things that maybe some other numbers that are more traditional leaders can't, cannot. Amen to that too. And I, I was just wanting to get to the fact that I think it's real important in this podcast that people understand that vulnerability is not weakness and emotional intelligence is not weakness. Both are strengths. And, and in the area of athletics, and, and of course football was my experience, my calling, if you will, EQ, as it's yeah. called, yeah, emotional intelligence, I, I, I believe is of more value than capabilities, skills, talents, abilities, right. however, oftentimes it's referred as IQ within the game because it's such an emotional game. Yep. All and athletics is All emotional. athletics is. Exactly. Uh, and, you, and you're taxed mentally and physically and emotionally right. simultaneously throughout the course of your competition, your preparation and such. And fours have a natural propensity to manage that, not to dismiss it, as you mentioned, not to try to wrap expectations around it, confine it, but to truly let it flow. Yeah. And then from that, it's my opinion that the true uh, joy of, of competitive sport comes out and flows. Oh, that's good. You know, yeah. um, you know, you, to, to get back, you mentioned the 15, the 20 something and the 30 something. Yeah. You know? I'd love to hear you talk about uh, <laughs> what you would, what you would want or what you would tell your, 15-year-old self, your 25-year-old self, and your 35-year-old self. My 15-year-old self, I would, I, I, would, I would look in the mirror and say it's okay to feel. It's okay to break down and cry in the middle of a football game. Because that's the football field was my sanctuary. That was my emotional sanctuary. There you go. That's very – that <laughs> statement almost sounds like an oxymoron. Right. So before you go on, talk about that some more. Well, th th that's where I learned to be who I th – that's where I was allowed to be me. Okay. And again, football, it's sports are all very similar, but football's different in the fact that it's so physical. Yeah. And it's so emotional. And yet, at that, within both of those, uh, what can be very open ended uh, emotional opportunities, you also have to, to know what's going on and focus, and you have to go do a task, there just you like go. you do in, in, in you athletics. Go. And so, with that, I could. I could express myself in all those areas freely. Sure. And because of the position that I played, it was it was best for the team. Yeah. And so for me, when I and 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 of course I put the 
I put that language to it. I didn't have that language back then. I just knew I loved to play yeah. and I felt like I was myself when I was in between those lines. I put that term sanctuary to it because I really felt like outside of the field, I had to be something that I felt like I wasn't. Oh, got it. Right. Got it. Got uh, it. As I got into my twenties and in college, <clears throat> still continue to play. Uh, I, I, I learned that, that it was, that who I was, was needed out there. It, it, I was called to be that. Mm -hmm. And because I was away from home and, and, you know, make no mistake, I, my folks and my family have been such one of the biggest blessings in my life. I was sure. raised in a, in a, in a strong Christian home. Uh, we never had much, but we never needed anything. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, but when I got out of that, those expectations of me needing to be that structured, composed, you know, individual, I, I, I learned, I learned that I could be more expressive. I could be more creative when I got into my thirties. Uh, and of course everything really changed when I got to JP two and, mm -hmm. and, and was introduced to your lovely daughter <laughs> and have worked with her and she's an amazing individual and was introduced to the Enneagram. I then developed to use your words, I developed language. Yeah in which I could put, and then there was a lot of, you know, there was an awakening of, of, of sorts, uh, to say, okay, I now know as I look back mm -hmm. and, and it's clarity. So I don't need to look back and, and regret or live in any of that meaning. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, why, what wasn't I introduced to this before then? Why wasn't it then there? Then it was no, everything, everything got me to this point to where now I feel like I can really minister to young men, young fours, as well as others, uh, you know, with that journey. Yeah. I want to go back to a question that Joel asked earlier about the connection between, um, your orientation to the past and your foreness and the fact that you go to one and two and both are <clears throat> oriented to the present moment. David White, who is a favorite author of mine, says that maturity is really uh, the ability to live in the past, present, and future all at the same time. And I, I'm not, um, I, I don't even know how good I am at that, so I, I certainly wouldn't know how to judge that anybody else. But I think it would be foolish in Enneagram wisdom for us to not suppose that if we're supposed to seek balance between thinking, feeling, and doing, if we're supposed to search for balance in our subtypes, then surely we need to also find balance in our relationship to time. And I wonder if you find problem-solving to be uh, something that is enhanced by being in communication with people who have a different orientation to time than you do. So for people who listen to the podcast, they uh, know Joey. And so for those who don't, Joey's a, my oldest and she's an eight on the Enneagram. And you two as friends problem solve together a lot. And the thing that you have in common as an eight and a four is that you both insist on authenticity and that you don't shy away from straight talk. The thing that is great disparity between the two of you is orientation to time. And I'm wondering if you think problem solving 
has to do with hearing a voice that represents a different orientation to time. Yes, I think so. Uh, you know, when I think as you grow, uh, especially in the Enneagram or, or, you know, other traditions that help you become better aware of who you are, I find that when I think of the past, I have a real appreciation and a gratitude because when you can take the focus off of yourself, you look at everything happening happened for a reason mm-hmm. to get you to the point you where you are now in the present. And so it's an appreciation for, I couldn't be here if I wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And then to me, h- how you handle the present again on this maturity continuum, how you handle the present is going to determine what your future is mm-hmm. versus what an expectation is, what a hope is, what a dream is, how you're, really living in the present. So do you see the future as an expectation or a hope or a dream uh, until you get there? Growing up, that's all I saw the future as, uh-huh. as a four. Uh-huh. And so I know uh, all you fours out there listening, I know it's, it's, it's you see it as a hope and a dream and or as a regret mm-hmm. because you're, you don't feel like you you can get to where you need to be. Uh-huh. Or you don't feel like you can become the person or have the relationships or whatever it is. But as you grow and as you understand that in a, you know, I don't want to get in too many coach, too many coaches. Okay um, yeah. I tell my athletes for years, there's a reason that the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror. Oh, that's right? good. Right. And, 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 and so you, 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 that's real good for a four. You, you don't focus <laughs> you on think? the fact. Well, that's why that's probably why it resonates that so probably well is with me. Why, yeah. Uh, and you're, you're all, always focusing on what's ahead, but not to the point where you're not focused on the here and the now, Yeah. you know, the, an, uh, another, another coach, I, I can hear it as, as if it's yesterday. <clears throat> Football's about, football is about what six inches in front of your face what can you do at the next snap of the football Uh that's going to ultimately determine how the outcome comes it's just about the next play so it's just about present moment it's about the present moment interesting it's about the present moment well i'm just so glad you're doing all this talking about past present and future because it's so hard to understand and it's hard to talk about and and as you and i both struggle to do that I think there's um, going to be some work for me in the future with how in the world are we supposed to really understand the value of each of the three and limit our uh, respect for each orientation of time to the real value it has, not to the comfort that it gives us necessarily. Is it true that when you make a move, stress or security that your orientation to time, does it temporarily change? Does it change? So for me as a seven, I do know that when I go to one, that I'm focusing on what needs to be done in this moment to try to get myself caught up with, so that some of the big planning can happen. And also handling some of the things that have not been, have not been handled and addressing some of those issues. So I can see that. Is that is that true for every number? Well, I actually think that um, 
you, you use the perfect language for me to follow up with, which is to say, no, your orientation of time doesn't change, but your focus does. So your orientation of time, your default is your orientation of time. And your default is always going to be the future. That's because right. You're but seven, the focus right. changes. That's but the great. focus changes. And so then the question for people gets to be, once you learn stances, then what do you learn about the orientation of time of the number that you go to in stress or security? And is your focus really going to be affected by that? And isn't the quote, what you focus on determines what you miss? Absolutely. That's Brian McLaren. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and I would add on that, Joel, and, 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 and to tell a quick story, when, we, when I was, I guess I was probably 13, 14 years old, uh, my father lost his job. And, and, and of course, dad's a seven. Um, and this is an orientation to time and present story. And I remember coming home and dad, we had a family meeting, right? Suzanne, you know about those family meetings. I you used to call do. them. And dad said, well, I've, I've lost my job and we are, I'm going to be looking for a new one. And, and it, summer had just gotten here. And, and I remember the family kind of looking around going, well, what are we going to do? And of course, you know, mom was upset and we were, I was one of five kids. And so we're all there kind of figuring it out. And, and I'll never forget dad as a seven said, but it's going to be okay. Everything's going to be great. And we're, I'm going to get a job. I'm going to, and, and what he did is he officiated basketball games all summer just to be able to make money for, you know, for, for meals and such. And his orientation to the future was, it's all good. Absolutely. It's going to be fine. Yeah. His orientation at the time was, yeah, but I got to go out and work. Mm -hmm. As a young person, as an emotional four, I needed that. Mm -hmm. That was a source of comfort because we looked around saying, well, what are we going to do? Yeah. You know, and there's a couple days later and we're drinking powdered milk. Yeah. And there's not much in the cupboard. Right. And we're like, this is real. Right. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? But I'll never forget. And, 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 my, and my younger brother and I would, would go to work with dad. We'd go to the games, he'd officiate and such. And he was, it was never, we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. You tie those orientations together. Right. And you're problem solving. Right. Well, and, you know, it, it's interesting because I'm just sitting here thinking about orientation of time. And not everybody has the balance to go to what they need. So you know, like fives are oriented to the past and they go all the way to the future in seven or eight. So there's no grounding there in what happens in between those two places. And I, I, um, I think that's why the answer is exactly what you said. It was though, that the orientation doesn't need to change and doesn't, but the focus does. Yeah. So hypothetically a, complaint or gripe that people will have about fives is that they do all this stuff, but then it doesn't, the goal isn't necessarily achieved. Right. Uh, you had someone who a was a planning. five. Yeah. A lot of planning. Yeah. And so they're planning and doing things in the now that's not going to get the job done in the future. Right. And so the focus can change. Sure. And I, I think it's advantageous to know, um, which one's going to be the greatest challenge for you. So as a two, um, you know, I, I have access to the past and access to the future. And I think that um, in the time that I spend secure and the time I spend in stress, I think that 
helps me a little bit to orient to, well, here's what happened, but here's what can happen, and here's what we're going to do. And I, I think that there is, I always say this, that there's two sides to everything. And I think the downside to all of that seven optimism, which saved you guys as a family in all of that moment, the downside to that is that sometimes it's all going to be great is unrealistic. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm a little concerned that in the popularity of the Enneagram at the moment, there's a tendency to look at it in terms of, oh, I know my number, what's yours? The need for a holistic approach in using the Enneagram has to do with all of the things that we talk about on the podcast. Knowing your number and not knowing the wisdom of the Enneagram won't really help you much. It, it is, in fact, reductive. And what people, uh, what critics say about the Enneagram is that it's reductive. And the Enneagram is not reductive. Knowing your number, perhaps from a test, is reductive. And what we're talking about is the whole system and what the whole system has to offer and the goodness that comes in doing deeper Enneagram work so you get all the goodies about orientation to time and all of that. I don't want us to miss an opportunity for you to talk to men of all ages up to yours about maybe I could ask you what are the top three gifts that you have because you're a four and what are the top three challenges? Gifts, uh, and again, I hope I'm, I hope I'm not being countercultural here. I feel like my strongest gift is my vulnerability. I do. I think it gives me uh, it gives me an opportunity to really to feel what somebody else is is experiencing. And as a four, because. Because, and, 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 and fours will get this if they're listening, all the pain, emotional pain that, that you just go through as a four growing up, your capacity for somebody else's pain is limitless. And so I can sit with someone when they're going through something very, very challenging and not try to fix it and not try to change it. Just go, yeah, I know. I attended a service this past week and their series right now is on grieving and prayer. And immediately I, I thought about how we say that fours are the only number that intuitively can do these things that they were talking about on the stage um, and at the front of the church. And I don't know what the ladies' anagram numbers were who were speaking but I just know, for instance, the person who was the pastor who's facilitating it said, does anybody know what to say at these times? And so my, my question is, how is there any advice that you would give? Because like I said, it would have been so great to have you or someone else. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, you know, the advice I give is, yeah, it's a bad deal. It hurts and it's going to hurt. And it's okay. And we're going to ask people to rally around. What I'm saying is acknowledge it for what it is. And once you do that, 
there's a connection that happens. Fours, I believe, have that wherewithal and that capacity because they have mourned so much more than so many other numbers have, whether it was something they needed to mourn or not, that there's an authenticity of, yeah, that person understands and doesn't want to fix it, doesn't want to change it. You acknowledge it what it is, but it's going to be okay. But is that why fours have that gift? Growing up, all the things that they mourn that the rest of us don't even know about, probably. All the small things that, mm -hmm. small and big to them. Nothing, mm -hmm. not trivial when I say small. But that they have that from childhood going forward that the rest of us just don't mourn as we go along. Because exactly. that's not in our DNA. That's exactly right. And I would just add to that, that I wrote down authenticity before you said it, because for the first time it dawned on me that perhaps as children you mourn because that's authentic and you're not willing to cover that. Absolutely. Yeah. Authenticity means so much you're not going to cover it. All right, give me a second gift. I think a second gift, um, and I think it's distinct to fours, is, is, is my humility. And that's not a badge of honor. That is... Fours are hyper aware of the deficiencies mm -hmm. in their lives mm -hmm. and in their personality and in their gifts and talents and skills. And, and we grow up spending time comparing ourselves to others mm -hmm. and then, of course, envying what we feel like we don't have. And over time, when, I, when I've gotten to the place where I feel like I am now, you have this understanding that no one's ever going to be enough. Mm. And so there's a humility that comes with that because you've, you've, again, Joe, going back to what you said, you've, you've, you've beat yourself up over the years of not feeling like you were ever enough. And there's this humility to say, yeah, but I, I'm enough right now for what I need. There you go. I have enough for what I need right mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. And so there's a humility there. And I feel like that's a strength. Me too. Third. I do. I think that fours... I think, and, and maybe this is for maybe fours who are a little bit more seasoned, a little bit older, uh, I think selflessness, and of course being a parent and a father, uh, a husband that is, you learn real fast that it's not about you. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's about a lot of other people and other priorities and things, and you learn to become selfless. And then as a four, you also get to the point where because you have, in your opinion, fallen short so much mm -hmm. that selfishness becomes a, 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 an act of futility. Oh, that's good, too. Real it really good. does. Yeah, I get that. Because you hit the wall. You say, well, I want to go get this and achieve that, and I want to earn this. And once you do, you realize, well, that wasn't enough anyway because there's somebody that has more yeah. or can Always. Or, or can run faster or jump higher or, or all these other kinds of things. So fours, fours accelerate that in their mind over and over and over again. And so selflessness is the result. You're like, it's not about me. Our experience, our, our life experiences teach us that. Good. So I would think selflessness. Okay. Three challenges. Well, I think first and foremost is, is, is staying in the present. Okay. Is my biggest challenge. Really being present. Uh, and, you know, some of the toughest times to be present are at home. Sure. Sure. When, when you're with your most loved and most comfortable 
you know, relationships. It's tough for to be present there, but, but, but being present is probably my biggest challenge. Second to that, I think balance, mm. ba- l- l- life balance, but more emotional balance. I believe that the Enneagram terms it, phrases it well, equanimity, yeah. which is emotional balance. Sure. Because uh, we can swing either way. We can be too emotional or we can become, like your point, dismissive. Yeah. So equanimity is a challenge. Uh, and I know that's also our virtue. That's, that's the direction yeah. in which we, you know, we try to go. And then I would say, ironically, selflessness being my third strength, selfishness mm. being my third challenge, because I think that, uh, and again, I think God intended for us to never be these perfected individuals when I, when I go to default, mm-hmm. I go to, well, so-and-so said that, that offended me. And why they look, and fours are the worst about, well, what was that look for? And what was that, what did he, what did he mean by that? Or she say, we, we, we feel first and think second. So we're constantly comparing ourselves to others and what people say and do. And that, that creates a very self-centered yeah. uh, kind of internal landscape. So good. So you know what? I'm sure glad you're in my life again. And I'm thankful for the um, ways that you have of talking about the Enneagram and talking about being a four. And I think we'll do this again sometime. Thank you. Thank you. The Enneagram Journey podcast is produced by Life in the Trinity Ministry. Music is provided by Solve Lighthouse. Professional photography is courtesy of Courtney Perry. We invite you to visit theenneagramjourney.org for more information, and we welcome your questions and comments. Thank you for being with us today.